0: has different levels. The foundation of delusion is lack of mindfulness or lack of awareness. For example, if we're lost in thought and we're not aware that we're thinking, that's delusion. It's taking the thought to be more than a thought in the sense that the thought of your mother is not your mother. But when you're lost in the thought, we take that to be real. We react to it as if it's real. So that's delusion. It's delusion when we're not aware of the three characteristics of existence. For example, when we take what's impermanent to be permanent. That's delusion. If we take what's selfless to be self, to be I, that's delusion. When we take what's suffering or unsatisfactory to be satisfactory, it's delusion. So, it's pretty pervasive. (laughs) 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 And as Sharon indicated, it really takes a very strong commitment of energy to awaken, to awaken the mind from that delusion because all, so much of our conditioning right, has been to reinforce delusion and ignorance.
1: What's the relationship between uh, the human realm, in the sense of a natural realm, not the moment-to-moment mind-state, the human realm and the Earth, as we know
0: it? Do you mean, are there human realms on other planets? I don't really know, <laughs> but according to the cosmological theory, each world system has 31 planes of existence, right? the lower realms and the human realms and the deva realms and the brahma realms, and there are 31 of those different planes, so it's one world system. and it said that there are countless, innumerable world systems. Given that description, it would seem that there are other places of human
1: realms. Could you say something about um, skillful means and how that develops out of the practice? or? Is it something you can learn, or
0: how does that... um Skillful means with respect to the practice?
1: Well, I'm not even sure I know what that means,
0: actually, skillful means. Okay. I'll give you a very simple example which you'll be able to relate to. In terms of skillful means with regard to right effort. If the effort is too tight, the skillful means is to relax a bit. If the effort is too lax, the skillful means is to rev it up a little bit. And so, in any situation, it's not that there's an absolute tighten or loosen, but always it's relative to where the imbalance is. So, skillful means, means coming back to balance, coming back to the middle. Something that I've reflected on a lot in terms of the meditation practice, in terms of life situations, has to do with a deepening understanding of what the middle path is. Now, The Buddha so often characterized the Dharma as the middle way or the middle path. And so often we find that Imbalance is when we've lost the middle between two extremes and whether it's the imbalance of effort or in interpersonal relationships or in different situations. When there's conflict or when it feels like we've lost our balance, it might be useful to think in terms of coming to the middle between the polarities and how to do that is the skillful means. They come a lot from experience. Right? And they can come from guidance, they can come from books. But, but most deeply it comes from your own experience. I imagine that you've heard this example, but it's a, it's a really good one, illustrating that. Uh, it's from Ajahn Chah, Jack's teacher in Thailand talking about skillful means, he said, if you see somebody walking down a road that you know very well, and you see them veering off to the right, you know, into a ditch or a dead end, you'll shout up and you say, go left, go left. If you see them falling off to the left, into a ditch or the side, you'll shout up and say go right, go right. It's not a question of one answer. It's a question of adjusting or balancing to the middle again so
1: to be skillful is to be
0: you could think of this whole game as balance of mind really what we're doing is learning to bring the mind into balance the balance of factors because it's out of that perfect balance and balance you could think of it almost in terms of a balanced scale You know, and at first it's going like this and this, and that's how our minds are. And then slowly the movements become less until there's perfect equilibrium. That is, no movement of mind. Which doesn't mean that things aren't happening. Everything's happening. The whole world, all existence is arising and passing away, but the mind is not moving, not reaching out, not pushing away. It's out of that balance that enlightenment happens, that opening to the unconditioned. So, in that sense, balance is everything. That's why, again, saying it many times, it's not what's happening that's important. doesn't matter what's happening, because balance can be cultivated with any experience. So, the idea of practice is not to get rid of the pain in the knee, and it's not to have a certain particular experience. Rather, it's to bring the mind into balance with whatever is going on. I hope that's clear, because it's really fundamental to the practice. And when you understand that, it's a big relief. Because you don't have to make anything special happen. Whatever happening is fine. Right. Can we simply settle back and be there with what's happening in that balanced way?
1: When we had the women's group, um, one of the things that came up was talking about how what is said, or what has been said, Jacqueline said, um, is that one of the things that is that was noticed is that women can attain deep level but have a problem, more of a problem sustaining them, and I mean that's sort of been coming home real, real close lately. And I see that when I get to a certain point, and then it starts, whatever comes up, usually it's fear of some sort, and I start going off, and you know that's how I've noticed some of some patterns, and that's when the patterns start happening. What I'm wondering about is. When that starts to happen, when when a fear arises because of feeling like a new level of of something, a new freedom or a new understanding, and then fear comes up and I start going off into an old pattern, how to moderate that? How then to work on the middle, on the back? Yeah, I
0: understand. I I was just thinking about the first thing you said. And it's just to share with you that maybe you feel that to be true about sort of the difference between men and women, but it doesn't resonate with me as being a difference. Uh, I think men have an equally hard time sustaining. (laughs) to the point of your question, though. It really has to do with your relationship with fear. And that's the place to look and explore. Because if your relationship with fear is one of friendship, then as fear comes up, you won't be pushed... outside of the moment, in order to avoid feeling it. But mostly, we are conditioned not to like the experience of fear. And so fear comes up, and immediately we do whatever we can to avoid that feeling, which can be spacing out a lot of different things. The place to come back to the middle, the middle in that sense, is what's actually happening in that moment, which is the state of fear. The experience of fear. Something that I've worked with some of you in interviews, and it might be a useful, skillful means in working with fear. Very often we know exactly what to do. We have a tremendous amount of wisdom in relating to these mind states when they're in other people. And so, one way of kind of remembering Sometimes to visualize just this child. You know, suppose you met a child who was sitting outside full of fear. How would you relate to that child? You'd probably go and be very supportive and caring and present, not feeding the fear and not condemning it, just being there for it. Right? You'd be there for that child. But when we feel fear, We beat it. You know, get away, I don't like you. Which would just be like saying to this child, get lost, kid. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. It's internalizing that child. So fear is present. How do you relate to it skillfully? By embracing it. Not wallowing, not identifying with it, not condemning, not avoiding. Just cradling it. I think that the sort of the translation into Buddhist terms would be um, unwholesome states unwholesome mind states and you could think of demons as being The hindrances, you know, and demons is really just a personification of mind states. In that way, it it both demystifies it a little bit and makes it much more workable. Um, In a collection of teachings called *The Wisdom of the Desert Fathers*, which tells about the early Christian mystics uh, who lived hermit-like in the desert. They speak a lot of the demons of sloth and of pride and of fear. And it's just using that terminology. I think it's not so helpful to externalize which is what can happen when when we uh, use that metaphor. So it's, it's more helpful to see it as being mind states. Because it, it gives us um, it's easier to work with it then in a skillful way.
1: What is the significance of color, and can it be implemented in the practice?
0: There's not. I'm familiar with the use of color in certain healing meditations. You know, and it's clear that different colors have different vibratory energies to them. It's not really part of the Vipassana practice. Um, There are times spontaneously when either different colors will appear in the mind or a very um, pervasive experience of light in the mind and body. But there's no emphasis at all on either inducing that or trying to make it stay. It's just another part of passing phenomena. There is, in um, concentration techniques, there's a whole set of very classical methods of practice of developing concentration on colored discs. They're called casinas. And there's the red and the blue and the yellow and. So in that way, it's used in practice, but that, that also is not a Vipassana practice, but just for one-pointedness. Did you have something else in mind, or was that...?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> What's the difference between um, uh, parinirvana
0: and uh, in the nirvana? Parinirvana is what happens at the death of a fully enlightened being, Nirvana is the experience of the unconditioned while these aggregates of existence still continue. Is that clear? <laughs> First of all, guilt does exist, (laughs) as you may have noticed. (laughs) It's not a very skillful state, but it definitely arises. Forgiveness, in a very fundamental way, is the acknowledgement of impermanence. The real acknowledgement that No matter what's been done, no matter what action has been done, everything is changing all the time. The situations have changed and we're changing and the the other person is changing. So there's nothing static, there's nothing steady. To be unforgiving is to make something permanent, which is another form of delusion. Really, when the as the experience of impermanence gets more and more integrated in us, forgiveness becomes the natural expression of that understanding.
1: Joseph, but if I forgive someone, doesn't it imply that I'm accepting a prior judgment? You'll have to. It seems to me that rather than forgive you, I'd rather in some way let
0: go of the judgment. Okay, well there can be immediate forgiveness. That is suppose somebody does something that harms you or hurts you. And there, there can be that sense of forgiving. Right? Of not not judging and not uh, condemning. And it doesn't mean Just to to be very clear, it doesn't mean that, first of all, that we sit back and that everything is fine and we never respond to situations, because sometimes strong response is necessary. And it doesn't mean that we don't discriminate between skillful and unskillful actions. Because both in ourselves and in other people, we can be very aware that an action is unskillful but that need not either cause guilt in ourselves or an unforgiving attitude towards the other person it can it can be the cause of some insight for ourselves realizing that something's unskillful and learning from it not doing it again and it can be the cause of forgiveness and compassion for other people seeing that people do things unskillfully out of ignorance What's, what's the response to that? Is there, when we see it on that level, then compassion becomes the automatic response because we just see people walking into fire not knowing, unknowingly. when you are, are truly mindful of a feeling that comes whether it's an unpleasant feeling like aversion or a pleasant one as you're mindful of the feeling what happens? changes anyway. It's really, in some way, there's a very fundamental difference between therapy and meditation. And it's important to understand what that difference is. Therapy works on the level of the content of thoughts and emotions. And seeing where the patterns come from and how we get caught in them And it really explores and helps often to untangle the content. Meditation has to do with seeing the impermanent, empty nature of all phenomena. And so, it's letting go rather than figuring out. When we're very skilled at letting go, the figuring out becomes less and less important.
1: It's awareness that purifies the mind. Um, is that the same as the, it's mindfulness that purifies the mind? And is it is it useful that that awareness is microscopic, or you know, is it the moment-to-momentryness of it that's important? Or could you talk about that? It is using
0: awareness and mindfulness in the same way in that context. One of the one of the ways it purifies the mind. One of the characteristics of mindfulness as a mental factor is that it's never associated with an unwholesome mind state. For example, when you're mindful of anger, when there's real mindfulness of anger, you're not angry. When there's mindfulness of desire, you're not desiring. Because in the moment of mindfulness, it's never associated with unwholesome states. In that sense, every moment of mindfulness is a purification. So there's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no delusion in that moment. What was the second part?
1: Oh, I was wondering whether um, what aspect of that is, is important. Like, is it the, um, oh, the microscope?
0: It's important on all levels because we live our life on all levels. Right? And so it's important to be aware of us, to be mindful you know, of ourselves as a human being, relating to other people, to the environment. It's also essential to develop the mindfulness and awareness more microscopically so that we break through the illusion of self as being this body, or this, this mind-body process. And it seems so solid, and it seems so, so me, right? and yet when the attention is very microscopic, the momentariness of phenomena becomes apparent, it's the boundaries start dissolving. This, it's, it's like looking at this through a high-power microscope, and so the solidity begins to dissolve and that strong identification begins to dissolve. In this last two weeks, I'd urge you to spend some time re emphasizing the concentration aspect of practice because it's through the power of concentration that we can penetrate to deeper levels of microscopic or <laughs> well, something like that. <laughs> it's concentration which is going to give that penetrating power to the mind. One way of doing that, coming back to skillful means again, you might spend one sitting a day or two sittings a day just working with the breath and not having an open, choiceless awareness. But redirecting the mind, refocusing the mind, you can do it either just by the noting of rising, falling, or in and out, or by counting the breaths. If you do that one time a day, one sitting, or two sittings a day, it will just give a slight boost to that concentration factor, which will be helpful.
1: What would happen if we did that over?
0: You would develop strong concentration. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to experiment and do it for a week, right, it it would be worth um, would be worth doing that. Concentration by itself is not sufficient, right? but it's an indispensable component of the practice and so it's it's worth spending some time really developing that power of mind and then employing it in the service of insight into the process okay, you've one last question yeah.
1: How do you do meditation and kind of let go of this vicious circle of trying to fight thoughts away cause
0: fear? There are different ways. I, the one that has been the most fruitful for me in working with obsessive thoughts is to finally get bored with them. When you sit, with that thought for 10 billion times, there's gonna come a time in your practice where you will be really bored with that thought. It's at that point that you could employ a cutting action, because there'll still be a momentum going from the, from the pattern, but at that point where you've seen it over and over and over again, enough and you really take a strong cutting action in the mind that's one way another way is to use the thought not to stay on the content level of it what the particular obsession happens to be, but use it as a time to investigate the nature of thought, the nature of the phenomenon. And so, you turn it, you transform that thought into, from being an adversary of this obsession, into a welcome guest in the mind. Because there's another opportunity for you to touch directly and experience directly what a thought is. And for myself, in practice, it's one of the most interesting, fascinating (coughs) investigations. Because our lives are so conditioned by thoughts. Mostly, our lives are spent just being dragged along by our thoughts and we follow them. And yet, very rarely do we take the time to investigate what the phenomenon of thought is. Where is it? Where does the thought happen? Does it happen in your head? Does it happen in your elbow? Does it happen in space? You know, where is this? Where is this thing? What is it? It's the most ephemeral, it's phantom-like phenomenon. And so real, so solidified in most of our experience. And so, if you turn it around in that way and change levels of investigation, again, it ceases to be a problem. I think we'll do some Now, if you have more questions, you can uh, come up afterwards. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.